It was his own room. There was no doubt about that. But it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened. The crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time or Marley's or for many and many a winter season gone. Heaped upon the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, long wreaths of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelve cakes, and seeding bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. In easy state upon this couch, there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see, who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's thorn, horn, in shape un, in shape not unlike Plenty's horn, and held it up high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping round the door. Come in, exclaimed the ghost. Come in and know me better, man. Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. He was not dogs he was not the dog Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. I am the ghost of Christmas present, said the spirit. Look upon me. Welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Anne, and it's true, wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. And I'm Drea, and I am here for the food. And if you all do not know the references we just made, I, I can't help you. Stop the podcast and watch a Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah, to get your life together. Find some damn holiday cheer. And speaking of the holidays, in honor of them, we're mixing it up a little bit on our next two episodes as we are going to feature not wine, but spirits. So in keeping with our theme of Charles's Dickens' A Christmas Carol or A Muppet's Christmas Carol, really whichever you prefer, I think we all... The true classic. Yeah, I think we all know which one we prefer. Um, we are being visited by three spirits. So each episode, we will discuss a spirit and share a cocktail featuring that spirit. This week's episode features my favorite spirit, bourbon. But, of course, we do like to keep some traditions alive. So to kick off our episode, we are going to start with our usual recurring segment, Cheers and Jeers. So, Anne, what are you cheersing and jeersing this holiday season? 
I am cheersing to the smell of Christmas trees. I walked past a Christmas tree lot in my neighborhood last week, and it was just heavenly. I feel like for me, I don't, it's not Christmas yet until I smell a Christmas tree. Um, It's really such a, a visceral memory and indication to me of the holiday. And I just, I love it. I love that smell. I love the Christmas crisp in the air. I also love the Christmas in the air. Um, so cheers to cheers to the smell of Christmas trees. It's just delightful. I really envy those of you who do not have horrible allergies. <laughs> <laughs> I have a candle and a fake tree and it's fine. I'm fine. Everything's <laughs> fine. Well, cheers to your allergies and uh, cheers to something else that you're allergic to, which is my cat, and specifically cheers to having to figure out pet care over the holidays. Um, It's really challenging and Scott and I are going to be gone extra long this time, so, and we haven't been gone basically at all, um, so it's been really hard to kind of figure out what are we, what are we going to do about, um, the most precious kitten on the planet, and, uh, we've worked it out, you know, it all, it's all fine, but I just don't remember it being this hard since the last time we had to find pet care two years ago, so... Yeah, I think that pet care is definitely something that people have had to rethink a lot over the pandemic. And I'm assuming that cat people aren't like dog people. Like, I just take my dog with me. Yeah, not usually. I don't think Hillary would be a big fan. I did think about it, (laughs) but no. So what about you? What are you cheersing and jeersing? So uh, now that we are into December and it is 100% acceptable to enjoy the holiday spirit, uh, I am cheersing to Christmas decorations that don't actually come out until December. Cheers to you for being patient and being appropriate and being thoughtful. I appreciate that. What are some of your uh, Christmas decorations that you hold out until December 1st? So I never put out decorations until December 1st. That is like one of my traditions. I am very set in my ways about this. So they all go up at once. It's literally like the transformation at Disneyland from Halloween to Christmas. Like it just all happens in one night. Uh, So the tree goes up, but I have two sort of uh, collections of things that take up the bulk of my Christmas decor. So one is I collect different tree little Christmas trees. Most of them are glass or some pottery ones, um, but typically every year that John and I have been married, I've gotten a new one for our collection. And then I also collect uh, nativity scenes because I am a very good guilty Catholic. <laughs> so yeah. I was going to say a very good cultural Catholic. Yeah, very good culture. Very culturally Catholic. Yes. They're also just really pretty. <laughs> yeah. My dad has a nativity scene for a crush when, from when he was in in Spain. It's very simple. It's just sort of carved figures out of wood, but it is absolutely beautiful. Um, and just one of my favorite Christmas decorations that my parents put out. Yeah, I love and I've I've tried to get one from places that we've traveled to. 
you know, extensively. So I, I, the big one I have is from the Christmas market in front of the cathedral in Barcelona. Uh, I have one from Peru. I have one from Costa Rica. I have one from Mexico. Also very Catholic places. Yeah, you know, so you go to a Catholic country, you get a nativity set for Christmas and a rosary, especially if you're me, because you need all the help you can get. So there we go. So that's my cheers, Christmas decorations that don't come out till December. And my jeers is this fucking California weather. Now, I know some of our listeners are like, this bitch needs to shut her damn mouth. Like... I am sure, I I was watching some football games the other day, there's like blizzards places, everything's horrible, it's starting to freeze, but honestly, like, how the fuck am I supposed to dress for the holidays in this heat? Like, how am I gonna wear my furs, my velvets, my boots, my leathers? This is ridiculous. Just to make you jealous, I'm over here wrapped up in a scarf and a sweatshirt and long warm pants and I'm really glad that my um headphones go all the way over my ears because it's keeping everything nice and toasty warm because we need it out here in the the cold east coast okay to be clear everyone Anne is sitting in her well-equipped apartment currently that has a heater so I'm not sure why she's acting like she's living in an igloo suddenly but whatever (laughs) Go buy some velvet. (laughs) Be that way. All right. Well, I feel like the shenanigans have already begun, but do you want to tell us what you've got planned for us this, this episode? Sure. So this episode, um, I really wanted to continue our play on A Christmas Carol. So during the visit from the Ghost of Christmas Present, Scrooge visits the Cratchits during their Christmas dinner. And one of the things I love about that scene, and even the scene that was in our teaser today, is the description of the food. And in particular, for the Cratchits, it's the goose. Um, where they give thanks that's extended even to the, quote, founder of the feast, Mr. Scrooge. And since pairings are such an important part of what we do at Two Girls and a Grape, and since food is oftentimes such an important part of how we celebrate being together during the holidays, I thought it would be fun for us to talk about our favorite Christmas meals and treats. So, Anne, what are some of your favorite Christmas food pairings that you look forward to every year? So I organized this list a little bit by like courses, um, kind of. I, I just realized I don't have a main course, which is like kind of a classic vegan problem. Oh, I, I think you got the main course up in here, but go on. <laughs> Pro- prove me wrong. My grandmother makes um, what we always called in our family Missouri-style stuffing because it was a recipe that came from the Missouri branch of the family. I don't actually know if people who actually live in the state of Missouri make stuffing this way or if it was just us, but uh, it, there are these little, like loaves or dumplings. I loved it as a kid and still have like pretty fond memories of it. It, I think it's really yummy and, you know, warm and homey. Um, So that is something that I am really looking forward to 
One of the other foods that I'm absolutely obsessed with is artichoke dip at the holidays. And I think I mentioned in the last episode, my aunt and uncle have a dip recipe that I have veganized. And so that always makes an appearance. Um, And yeah, just love, love to start any kind of holiday with that. Love to finish any kind of holiday with that. Just consistently have that during all the holidays. (laughs) All the holidays, any other day, any excuse for artichoke dip, basically. My dad also is really well known in our family for his cranberry relish, which just to be clear is different than cranberry sauce. So cranberry sauce, you like cook over the stove and um, it's very sweet and sticky and things like that. This cranberry relish, well, I guess it depends on who you ask. If you were to ask my mom, she would say it is still very, very sweet. Um, But if you were to ask my dad or my dad's side of the family, they would be like, meh, it's not that sweet. Um, But they're the people who the matriarch on that side of the family used to put like a cup of sugar in green beans. So their advice is not to be trusted. But anyway, to make this, you basically take raw cranberries, raw apple, uh, not onion, an orange, and um, kind of dice it all really, really fine in a food processor, add some sugar, and it just like, it comes up with this really beautiful color. It's very refreshing as opposed to being sort of overly sweet. And with like all of the other foods that are being served um, at this holiday season, it's nice to have something that's got a little bit of a bite to it and a little bit of sourness. Um, So it's really good and really tasty and I just really enjoy it. So also looking forward to having that. And then finally, for for dessert, I absolutely must have a pumpkin pie. Must have. It's, it's required. There was one year uh, for Thanksgiving, actually, when we were back visiting my mom's side of the family, and her sisters are all known for making really wonderful pies. And no one, no one made a pumpkin pie, which it was just a travesty. I don't think I, I still don't think I've forgiven them for that, to be honest with you, because I'm bringing it up on this podcast. Um, Needless to say, it has never been a mistake that has been repeated for any holiday ever again. So those are the things that I am excited to have this Christmas. And um, I'm excited to kind of think about like, what, what would I pair with these things? I love how we get just like a little bit of Cantor family drama every time we do this podcast. It really (laughs) makes me very happy. (laughs) The truth comes out. We haven't even started drinking yet. I know. Well, you know, what what can we say? Uh, All of those things sound delicious. I... I also want to say that stuffing can totally be a main course, so it's fine. I mean, with the amount that I eat, it definitely makes up for it. <laughs> Get a little side salad going. Great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I have, um, unlike a actual adult human who coursed her favorites out, um, I just have two buckets. Things I always have eaten forever and ever at Christmas, and then recent additions that have become um, traditions in my own household in the last, I would say, like five to ten years. Uh, so the always traditions are three key things. First and foremost, tamales. Like, Always, always, always tamales at Christmas time. Um, 
They are the perfect Christmas breakfast. They are the perfect Christmas snack. And I mean, who doesn't want just a little, just a little, little envelope of delicious masa and rich sauce and a filling of one's choice? And so um, I also love that there is such a part of the tradition of growing up Latinx in Los Angeles and just this, you know, everyone had their spot that they got their tamales or their own particular family recipe. And people have a lot to say about their preferences. And I, I love that about it, that it's not just a a food item in a tradition at Christmas, but it's a whole cultural signifier that reminds me so much of, you know, not only my childhood, but my heritage, and it is a favorite. Tamales are truly one of the greatest things that Mexico and the Latinx culture has given to the world. Like, if nothing yeah, else, fantastic. we owe you so much for that. You really, you really do. <laughs> You're oh, <wow>. welcome. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll take my tamales and my nativity scenes. Good day. <laughs> um, and then for dinner on Christmas, there are two things that are always present, and that is a roasted ham and Mexican-style rice, which seems like an odd combination, but is so delicious together, uh, along with other, like, accoutrements, right? Like something green, some rolls, this and that. Um, you know, as Mexicans, we don't always have dinner rolls like it's usually like tortillas are usually much more prevalent in our house in our household growing up but for Christmas we always had dinner rolls probably King's Hawaiian uh but the ham is interesting because so for years my mom always made the ham and she would do a brown sugar and pineapple juice glaze for it then about five years ago um, I developed an allergy to pineapple. So it if I have pineapple or pineapple juice, I now just feel like a million little needles are poking my tongue and the entire inside of my mouth, and it's literally awful. So um, I have taken over ham duties in the last couple of years, and um, I do an apple orange clove and um, spicy honey glaze on mine. So it's a different style, but same tradition. And then the Mexican rice, no one makes rice like my mom. And I always want her to make rice. I've tried it a million times. It's never the same. So I just let her do it. Um, so those are the, the classics. And then some re recent additions um, that are very much about my kind of present Christmas and the way we celebrate now is there is a wonderful little bakery in Cardiff by the Sea, uh, which is in North County, San Diego. And it is also where John and I lived when we first got married. And this bakery has been there forever. It's called VG's. And they make the most amazing blueberry buttermilk bar donuts. They are so good. And they actually have pieces of real blueberries in them. They are deliciously decadent and just so tasty. So every year I order a dozen blueberry bar donuts just to have at the house for my parents and for us during, you know, that time period between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. And then as I've gotten more and more into wine, I'm very 
selective about which wines I pick up for Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve, New Year's. And it's always important to me to have a really beautiful bottle to share that's not just a, a good wine, but something that, you know, sparks a memory or sparks um, some joy that I know that my family will appreciate. So I have just picked up uh, one of my Christmas wines. This last week, I was at a Spanish restaurant in Pacific Beach that also has a little Spanish marketplace called Papa Negra. And they carry Gromona Imperial Cava, which is an aged cava of the Sons of the Anoya. And it is very much a Catalan Christmas tradition. So it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful cava. It's got notes of brioche, but just a little bit of like that saltiness that that region is known for their mineral soils. And I love it. So that bottle is now waiting to be opened probably on Christmas morning. I am salivating over those donuts and now over this wine. I mean, I'm not gonna lie, those donuts and that wine together is like, it's like you go to Barcelona and die there. It's so great. (laughs) So our spirit uh, today, which honestly is gonna go with all of those things that we just told you we're gonna eat, is bourbon. And the first thing to know about bourbon is it is a type of whiskey. Whiskey can be made and is made all over the world. However, there are a few things that make bourbon a distinct variety of whiskey. First is bourbon is an American-made spirit. Um, That is probably the biggest difference here. So yes, there are Canadian whiskeys, there are Japanese whiskeys, there are Scotch whiskeys. Bourbon is the American iteration of a whiskey. It is barrel aged, which is kind of a major part of that process. And it's also a really versatile uh, spirit. And so you can do a lot of different things with bourbon. Um, It can be a refreshing drink. It can be a very spirit-forward direct cocktail. And you can also drink it neat or on the rocks, which is something I really love and appreciate about it. But I'm also like a fucking booze hound. So here we are. The history of bourbon, like the history of gin, is rather complex. Um, So we're not we're going to get into some of the greatest hits today. But there are two books I would highly recommend about um, bourbon if you do want to learn more about its history. So the first is Bourbon Empire, The Past and Future of American Whiskey by Reed Mittenbuehler. And the second, which is a super cool um, piece, is Whiskey Women, The Untold Story of How Women Save Bourbon, Scotch, and Irish Whiskey by Fred Minnick. And so these are both awesome books that if you are into reading about food and beverage um, are super fun, and I highly recommend them. But let's get into some of, you know, the basics of what bourbon is and how it came to be in our glass today. So bourbon is defined as a brown liquor that is distilled from a mash having at least 51% corn in addition to malt and rye. And one of the things I want to emphasize is this is actually a legal definition from the federal standards of identity for distilled spirits. And so there is actual 
there's an actual legal definition of what bourbon can be, and it has to meet certain criteria. So one, it has to be produced in the United States or its territories, so like Puerto Rico and the, and Washington, D.C. Um, it has to be made from a grain mixture that is at least 51% corn. It has to be aged uh, primarily in new or char oak barrels, and it can be distilled to no more than 160 proof, which is 80% alcohol by volume. So there are lots of ways that bourbon gets kind of controlled by overseers. So just like wine in some ways, right? Just like there are viticulture areas and there are regulations for growing and putting that that labeling for an appellation or for a type of varietal on a label, the same applies to bourbon. So there are rules that distilleries have to follow to be able to label their product an American bourbon whiskey, um, which I think is really interesting. I was going to ask you about that because it just feels so weird that there's like a legal definition for it. And I was trying to figure out in my head, is it like, so people know what they're getting? Is it to like keep people from dying of like moonshine (laughs) poisoning or whatever. I mean, I think a lot of it is very similar to uh, what we saw with the gin craze in our previous episode, right? Is you had, especially during Prohibition, a lot of people distilling their own brews, um, using wood grain alcohol, things like that, that um, could be very, very harmful to consumers, right? And since this is a rather intense spirit, shall we say, I think regulation (laughs) becomes a little bit more important. Also, as we're going to see, the bourbon industry um, really has a very deep relationship to the history of the United States. So, Uh, I'd love to dive into that story, which I found fascinating. And listen, I've been drinking bourbon for about 15 years now, and I didn't know any of this stuff. So researching this episode has been super fun um, and enlightening to me, and especially since (laughs) in light of our recent colonial fantasy holiday (laughs) episode, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. We're really entrenched in some American tradition now. Look at us go. (laughs) (laughs) It all comes back to colonialism. It really does. Uh, So the history of bourbon is almost as old as human presence in what is now North America. As early as uh, seven before Common Era, indigenous people were domesticating a weedy Mexican grass called teosinte uh, and ultimately transformed it into the primary ingredient of bourbon and the grain that has historically fed and fueled not just indigenous populations, but early colonial settlers and early citizens of the United States. So we're really looking at corn, wheat, and grains, right? Like those are three key crops that are incredibly important, not only to indigenous Americans, but to early arrivals from Europe. And of course, it's not too long after colonial settlers show up 
that people start trying to figure out ways to make booze to pass the time. So in the early 17th century, a man named George Thorpe, who's a colonist, begins experimenting with making alcoholic beverages from corn. I should note, though, that this practice is like wasn't his great invention. Indigenous tribes, including the Inca in Central and South Amer- America, were using corn for centuries already to produce fermented alcoholic beverages. So for example, in Peru, there's a drink called chicha, which is produced from chewing the mash of corn um, and is a fermented drink that is oftentimes used in religious ceremonies. So uh, there's a long tradition of of making alcoholic beverages from corn. But this is early 16th century, uh, 17th century, excuse me, in uh, what is now the continental U.S. for purposes of the bourbon story. Then in 1776, we get um, the revolution, independence, and as the war with the British has hindered um, sugar trade and therefore rum production, Americans are forced, poor babies, to distill their own liquors from native grains like rye and corn in order to make spirits. And so the bourbon industry is really formally born out of the desire to drink once that supply has been cut off. Um, So, you know, talk about that American enterprising spirit. (laughs) Uh, In 1792, Kentucky joins the Union, and more and more Americans are moving into the Ohio River Valley region, where corn grows particularly well. So this is the beginnings of what becomes the epicenter of the American bourbon industry, which even to this day is in Kentucky. So if people have heard of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, right, where you can go and visit all these really historic distilleries. In 1794, we get the Whiskey Rebellion. So this is where, and this is, I think, a huge foreshadowing moment for the United States in terms of alcohol production and consumption. Um, So frontier distillers in western Pennsylvania were resisting payment of a whiskey tax, which was the first tax on a domestic product from the new government. So George Washington actually had to send the army in to suppress these insurgents and enforce the federal law. And it was a huge symbolic moment because it was really one of the first major domestic examples of the newly minted federal government kind of demonstrating their sovereignty and ability to regulate law across these states. This is referenced in the musical Hamilton. (laughs) You're such a dork and I love you. (laughs) I'm trying to think of it real fast so I can sing it to you, but I can't come up with it. Um, And speaking of the federal government... In 1797, even good old George Washington gets in on the action and working from his residence at Mount Vernon, he becomes the nation's largest distiller, specializing in rye whiskey, which is bourbon's close cousin and made primarily from rye. And I like that was crazy to me. I was like, what? Um, That sounds like using your powers. Un- unprofessionally like i i want to say nepotism but i feel like it's only nepotism if your children benefit this just feels like i mean this is like the precedent for like housing secret service at trump tower like that's what this is 
Anyway, continue. (laughs) We're still only in the 1700s. Right. Sorry. Okay. So now we're in the 1800s, though. So in 1802, um, Thomas Jefferson, who actually strongly disliked whiskey and was very much a wino, and there's a whole story about his wine collection that we can get into on a different episode. He actually eliminates the hated whiskey tax. And what he does, he does it, though, to try and cut down on the illicit moonshine market while promoting innovation and growth uh, for legitimate distillers. So it's really more of an economic, like, stimulus attempt than he actually, than him actually caring. In 1807, middlemen merchants uh, from the south of France start to settle along that Mississippi River area and bring the tradition of aging spirits in charred barrels to whiskey for long voyage markets like those in New Orleans. And so it's really the French that bring that barrel aging tradition to the United States. In 1821, we get the first known advertisement using the word bourbon to describe whiskey in Kentucky's Western Citizen newspaper. And it it really starts to change the way that people are thinking about the bourbon industry. Um, and then in 1830, we get improvements in distilling technology uh, that come from the Irish and further movements in marketing. So you start to see trends where distilleries are now like branding their names into their barrel heads, um, which really brings about the phenomenon of brand name alcohol and alcohol production. So it, it becomes not just about the liquor itself, but about who's producing it. And as we all know now, brand recognition is a huge thing, um, not just in spirits, but in wine, you know, and food and beverage in general. So then over the course of the Civil War, a bourbon continues to gain popularity because it's easy to access, right? The country is entrenched in this horrible civil war, but bourbon is one of those products that is domestically made. So people are able to get it um, since importing isn't the most important issue facing the nation at that point. And that, that popularity kind of sticks around. So late 1880s, bartenders are now playing with bourbon um, in cocktail early cocktails. So we get things like old fashions and Sazeracs and sidecars, some of the earliest bourbon cocktails. And a lot of um, historic restaurants that you see, uh, especially in the South, will have versions of these cocktails that are recipes from this period, uh, which is really fascinating to me if you're into like historic drinking tourism, which is really a niche apparently. But this popularity also brings its own share of problems. And so in 1897, we get the Bottled and Bond Act. And this was meant to address problems with mislabeling and dangerous additives 
uh, within liquor. So the Bottle and Bond Act formally establishes uh, standards of identity and makings in the U.S. for the authenticity of whiskeys and bourbons. And so, again, when we talk about that legal definition of a bourbon, that's something that we see reinforced here, or uh, the first attempt at enforcement. And then in 1909, uh, after the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, President William Howard Taft announced rules for definition and composition of American whiskey uh, both in terms of bourbon and rye. So all of this, we're on we're on the up and up, right? Bourbon's on the up and up. She's popular. Everyone loves her. Boom. Prohibition. <laughs> so national prohibition legislation hits, right? And quantities of alcohol are now severely limited, including uh, bourbon. So Americans turn, of course, to alternatives. One is the sale of ginger ale, which even then was a popular additive to bourbon for cocktails. And then, of course, the second one, and I think by far the sexier one, is bootlegging. So the bootlegging tradition that really rises in the 1920s and out of necessity from the prohibition creates a little bit of a renaissance in terms of distilling, right? As people are going underground and trying out new methods and trying out new processes um, and new sort of ratios for how to make their bourbon. Um, and in finally, in 1933, bans on whiskey and bourbon are repealed. And a lot of this has to do, frankly, with trying to generate income um, and industry during the Great Depression. So that's really what um, gets the government to end prohibition. We fast forward to 1941, World War II. Um, and the government in 1941 actually assumes control of the industry as distillers churn out industrial alcohol to be used in the war effort. And it earns the spirits the name of Cocktails for Hitler, which is disturbing to me for lots of reasons, but here we are. And this... The war continues to affect the bourbon industry even after it's over. So, for example, in 1947, President Harry Truman actually shut down the nation's distilleries for 60 days in order to conserve grain and send it overseas to feed Europeans who, you know, were living in these places that had just been completely and utterly destroyed. And so there was a real kind of global hunger crisis at this time um, that the U.S. government is trying to assist with. Uh, and then we we get kind of a lull um, in the the you know, late 40s, early 50s. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that bourbon just wasn't readily available during the war effort. Um, but in 1964, Congress declares bourbon a, quote, distinctive product of the United States and gives it special trade protection protection in overseas markets. So that's why even today, when you travel overseas, you will notice that American bourbons and whiskeys are incredibly rare and expensive. Um, and so, you know, part of it has to do with the limited amount that can be exported. And then, of course, all the import taxes that these other places have to pay for American alcohol. Same with the wine industry, too. 
Then I found this amazing connection to our gin episode and the whole James Bond situation with the martini. That James Bond got around. He was quite a lush. He really was. Um, so in 1867, the height of the Cold War, Jim... 1967. Oh, sorry. In 1967, at the height of the Cold War, Jim Bean actually hires James Bond actor Sean Connery as their spokesperson. Um, Which is fascinating because he has both an Irish, I mean, a Scottish accent and like a very thick Scottish accent. And Bond was known to drink shaken, not stirred vodka martinis. Did I get that right? I got that right. But both gin and bourbon are apparently like, hey, Jimmy, come on down. Let's hang out. Uh, And then we see from the 70s through the 80s, a real steady decline in bourbon sales and production. Um, And this has a lot to do with kind of cultural shifts in uh, the way young people are really looking to get their jollies in terms of the alcohol market. So vodka becomes very popular, partially because of the James Bond craze, but also it is cheap and readily available. You also have a real surgence of tiki culture. So rum becomes another very popular spirit. And of course, wine. So we've talked a lot on previous episode about, you know, the 70s and the 80s really being a renaissance of winemaking, especially in the United States. Um, That's where you start to see the real rise of kind of major vineyards and producers in like Napa and Sonoma area. um, And they really start getting noticed on the global market. And so you start to see more and more people sort of shifting to those types of drinks. Then we fast forward to the 2000s. So between 2009 and 2014, trends in the media and the food industry start to drive sales and production of bourbon back up and domestic whiskey sales surge 40% in five years as a new generation kind of discovers um, the joys of bourbon and rye. And a lot of this has to do with what's really pop in pop culture at the time. So you think of like, you know, the Don Draper Mad Men period and sort of that 1950s, 1960s aesthetic. There's a real return to kind of heritage cocktails. And in the United States, those cocktails are really made a lot of times with bourbon. Um, And so by 2017, the number of American craft distilleries has increased by over 1,300 and continues to be strong to this day. So I hope that this bourbon renaissance and resurgence continues because it is absolutely one of my favorite spirits. (laughs) It's so fun to learn about drinks, guys. It's just so fun. So what about your personal history with bourbon? Like, why is it your, why is it such a go-to drink for you? So when I was thinking about, um, you know, planning for this episode and that I had the ghost of Christmas present, I thought, I, I spent a lot of time actually thinking about, you know, my own history with cocktails and sort of where I where I've been, where I am. And believe me, I've had my garbage days of Cosmos and lemon drops, uh, made with vodka, not with gin and all that good stuff. Um, 
I think my drink of choice when I was a freshman in college was like Malibu rum and coke. Like it was gross, guys. But <laughs> whose wasn't? Who among us? <laughs> fair, 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 fair. Um, but but bourbon is still a really good spirit indication of, of where I am in my trajectory. So this is the liquor that got me through graduate school. Like, I owe my PhD as much to bourbon as I do to anyone. And it's still a favorite. Like, it's still my go-to in a lot of situations. And one of those situations I was thinking about is that it always reminds me of football weekends in Berkeley with my dad. Like, grabbing a drink before heading up to Cal's Memorial Stadium you know, commiserating over a bourbon on ice after we've just watched the Golden Bears lose, which is what I did last night. Uh, so, you know, it just, it gives me a lot of good memories. Um, and it also is something that I'm still always, like, drawn to. It's a very comforting spirit, shall we say. Oh, I have um, much less of a history with bourbon, but I did go through a phase fairly recently, a couple years ago, where I made like a bourbon lemonade drink, and that was my drink of choice for the summer. Uh, it was really good. I'm gonna have to look up that that recipe again. I I err on the sweet side versus your spirit forward side, but it was it was really nice. All right, should we uh, should we go make our drinks? So Drea, what what is this drink that I see before me? So I feel like I need to issue a disclaimer. This is not I'm worried. <laughs> this is not your drink. You are not gonna No, I know. I smelled it. <laughs> I am actually I just everyone, I wanna give a hip hip hooray to Anne, who actually bought an entire bottle of really phenomenal bourbon for this episode, knowing full well that this is not her drink. So we are going to do our best to turn it into her drink. Um, but this is 100% my drink. So tell us about this. What is this drink? So we are making today a left hand, which is a variation on a Negroni and a Boulevardier that really showcases the type of cocktail drinker that, frankly, I am. And the cocktail drinker that I have been uh, in in the past. And the cocktail drinker that I aspire to be. True. Oh, look at all. We're covering all the ghosts at once. <laughs> so you're all welcome. Um, but the flavor profile of this particular cocktail is going to be spirit forward, super aromatic, and deep, bold flavors. The bourbon that I am using is called Old Scout Smooth Ambler, Ambler, and it is actually not from Kentucky. It's from a small boutique distillery in West Virginia, and I hate to tell everybody this, but it is now out of business. And I have amassed quite a backstock. <laughs> of these bottles <laughs> and I only bring them out for very special occasions. And this particular bourbon, I only drink one of two ways. In the perfect Manhattan, 
and it has that Manhattan has to be made for me by my bro Ed, who owns and operates Shenhua Restaurant in Berkeley, California, and gave me my first taste of Old Scout many, many years ago. And he is a king, and I love him. Um, or neat or on the rocks. That's it. Have we made a mistake today? No, we haven't, because this is the perfect cocktail for this bourbon to really showcase its its depth. You know, you can use. I would use a mid to high range bourbon. So if you can't get a hold of Old Scout, and let's be honest, you probably can't because I bought a shit ton of it. I, for this, I really like Willet. Uh, that's a fantastic um, go-to. I like um, Forrester makes some great bourbons. Those are all going to cost you between like $50 and $60 a bottle uh, retail. If you don't want to spend that, totally get it. Pick up some Makers. Pick up some Bullet. Uh, insider tip, Trader Joe's, their Kentucky bourbon, just like their Trader Joe's brand Kentucky bourbon, is great for mixed cocktails. So, you know, and I think it retails for like $14.99 for the bottle. So you don't have to break the bank to really enjoy a fancy spirit-forward cocktail that's going to meet your, your bourbon cravings. And so this one, as I mentioned, it's kind of a riff on both Negroni and a Boulevardier, two very classic cocktails. And if you remember from our gin episode, um, a Negroni is my preferred gin drink, typically. And so this is going to combine bourbon, sweet vermouth, Campari, chocolate bitters, uh, and then you, you know, I like to garnish with either cherries or an orange wedge or both. You're going to shake it over ice in a cocktail shaker, and I like to serve it in a coupe. So we'll post the full recipe um, for you on Instagram, and so you can follow along and experiment with us. And yeah, that's, that's it. That's the drink. But um, as we have discussed, Anne and I are soulmates in every way accept our cocktail choices. So, Anne, I, I fully recognize that this is probably not your, your, your drink. First, why did you do what you did? And then what did you do to meet your needs? So first, because I always feel like I can learn from you. I did just make the drink as instructed. So I have sitting here at my little podcasting station, two beverages, which is probably too many. And one of them is basically exactly as you described with an orange as a garnish instead of the cherries. But I knew without tasting it, like I could smell how much this was not my drink. So I did a couple of things that I know would make this better for me. I basically took exactly what you did, same ingredients, same process, shake it up. And then I also added about an ounce and a half of uh, simple syrup. I just used the ginger simple syrup that I had on hand for our last episode and then added the juice of one orange because I had already cut an orange. So I did that because I know that I like just about anything sweet 
like a sweet drink is, is always going to be my drink of choice. So for me, kind of the opposite of you in our last podcast, for me, it was like, let me take this, let me add some simple syrup to it because that's going to make this better for me. And then I was also kind of tasting as I went along because I wasn't quite sure, you know, how do I want to adjust this? So I tasted that and that was like, okay, I'm getting closer to like something that I would like still a little too flavorful, I would say (laughs) for me. Um, so at that point I added the orange juice And then I added, um, I basically just topped it off with some club soda or sparkling water. So very simple changes. And then I put that in, I actually um, shook mine up in a mason jar. So I just added all of that to the mason jar, stuck an orange on the top and put in a straw and called it good. And I'm pretty happy with it. It's, It's sweet. It's refreshing. You still get that bourbon taste that's really nice, but it's like, a much, much milder, sweeter version of what you have described. I'm like a little bit, like my mouth is a little bit afraid of tasting the drink that you, that you created because I know what's coming for me, but I've got my, I've got my version to, uh, to look forward to. And I have been enjoying it while you've been explaining. And Anne also is serving her version over ice. Um, This one is shaken on ice and then poured directly into a coupe. So there's lots of ways that you can, you know, mix this up to your taste. But to be fair, bourbon is actually on the sweeter side of liquors. Like it's inherently, it is you know, very distinct, very um, forward flavor, but it also does have a lot of residual sugar. And so it is going to air more on the sweeter side anyways, um, for those of you who are wondering how to balance this out. But to Anne, your point, experimentation at the bar is like the best thing you can do to figure out like where you're at and what you like. And your version would actually make a really lovely like winter punch. Yeah. If you're entertaining, you know, so and not because let's be honest, unless you're a real booze hound, not a lot of people are going to like this cocktail. But wait, have you not tried the the standard recipe that I have offered up for you? I have not. I have been waiting for our tasting conversation. Okay, well, let's let's and I've been afraid. (laughs) I think we need to get into that. So first. All right, let's. Let's talk about the color. And actually, we're not that far removed from our gin episode. We're really staying in that same color palette family. We've made some very thematic cocktails here. This is another really lovely red holiday drink. Mm-hmm. A little deeper red, a little deeper red. Yeah, my version of this and my beet martini were both more on the pink side. This is much more of like a true red. But it's still festive, still festive. Colors of the season. Okay, so take a whiff of the one I made. I mean, I'm going to say my classic catchphrase, I smell alcohol. I mean, in this case, you're kind of not wrong. And so here's the other main difference between Anne and I is Anne loves a sugary drink. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, with like, you don't get necessarily that, that whiff of the actual distilled spirit it's it's the intensity of the distilled spirit that yeah that turns me off i more than like the sugar on the other hand live for that shit i once went to the bacardi distillery in puerto rico and did a a rum tasting and even with their blanco like their bottom of the barrel bacardi blanco 
I was like, I'm actually picking up some light notes of caramel and vanilla. Is that good? And the guy who was leading the tasting was like, you either have a phenomenal palate or you drink a lot. And, you know, I took it <laughs> as a compliment. So, yes, I do like a very, like, I I enjoy the actual taste of alcohol. <laughs> I, on the other hand, one of the few times I've gone tasting was doing a whiskey tour in Scotland. Really nice, really fancy. Got to the end of the tour. Loved. I loved every part of it. I loved the whole process of like walking through the distillery. I loved the smell of the mash and the grains. Everything was super interesting to me. We get to the end. They give us a taste. I take one sip of it and I am just, ugh. I can't, I, ugh, ugh. I needed a stout. I, I was like, can someone please, can I just please have a, a Guinness or some kind of beer right now, please? Something else that you do well. But, you know, again, I think like that's the reason why prior to, to the last couple of years, I've always been more of a beer drinker um, than a cocktail drinker and, and more of a, I mean, even for a while, more of a beer drinker than a wine drinker. I find the flavors to be still really enjoyable, but without that sort of intensity of the alcohol, whereas you eat the intensity for breakfast. Well, and also, like, I am not a beer drinker because it's so filling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I love, like, sipping on a uh, fancy cocktail, doing my thing, getting my jollies in. And and a beer, honestly, to finish a whole one is like a chore. I'm just like, well, especially because I do like porters and stouts, which have a, a lot of those are bourbon barrel age. So there is some commonality yes. there. Like there's a trend emerging, but there's they're they're delicious. But I, there's like two days a year in San Diego where I can comfortably have a fucking stout because it's two thousand degrees here and I insist on wearing velvet with fur trim. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Just can't be out. All right, well, All right. now that... So, okay, so, so <laughs> what do you have to ask? <laughs> I was going to ask you what flavors you're getting, but I don't even remember if we've gotten to that part yet. <laughs> wow, one one sip, ladies and gentlemen, and here she is. Um, So, I mean, listen, this is, a sp this is not like drinking a fine Pinot Noir, okay? This is a very spirit-forward cocktail. You should get the sweetness of the bourbon, um, that's going to have like some toffee, some, some uh, coffee flavorings, um, a little bit of caramel, some vanilla, maybe some baking spice. So the, the flavor pal palette and wheel for bourbon is actually not so far removed from some really classic reds. But what makes this drink, I think, so appealing to me is the juxtaposition with the Campari. So Campari is a dry, bitter, herbal Italian liqueur. And it just adds a bit of like, woo, to whatever cocktail you're drinking. On our previous episode, I was talking about infusing my Campari with espresso beans to make a Negroni. You could do that same methodology with this cocktail and it would be fucking phenomenal. 
I just didn't because I forgot and I'm lazy. So, um, but it would be fantastic. So if you wanted to just kind of batch a big thing of espresso infused Campari, you would have that for both of those. And so you get that. And then the bitters that I used are Aztec chocolate bitters. And we'll post a photo of those on the Instagram as well. Um, they are one of my favorites to use with really spirit forward cocktails because they pick up on those deep notes. So like if I'm making a mixed drink with um, any sort of aged tequila or reposado or especially an añejo, uh, if I'm making something with an aged rum, if I'm making something with a bourbon, like that's kind of my go-to bitters. But you can use different ones. So you can use classic orange, you can use cherry. I have seen variations of this drink and Manhattans with black walnut bitters. So there's a lot of different opportunities to kind of play in that way too. And they're just going to give you a slightly different finish on your cocktail. So drink up. Tell me what you think. <laughs> Here we go. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. So happy right now. So happy. So... When you describe all of the beautiful flavors that I am supposed to be getting and that, that you get, it is like, it is like liquid poetry. And then I put it in my mouth and my tongue just screams. <laughs> and then I swallow and my throat screams. <laughs> Help, what are you doing to us? Yeah, I like I could drink this all day. It's so I should not, but I could. <laughs> it would it would take me all day to drink this. <laughs> so I have now also tasted mine. Okay. And I think on deeper reflection, if I was gonna make my drink again, I would probably start with the orange juice or even grapefruit juice. And then go lighter on the simple syrup or possibly omit the simple syrup entirely. I think the fruit juice might be sweet enough. And as far as your drink goes, I would make it into my drink. You're like, I would just never drink it again. <laughs> I would I would not drink it. I so. would I would recommend I would the pass orange. it across the table to you. Thank you. Which is as we are accustomed to, so all is well. All right, so should we... Uh, so Yeah, let's talk should, about some should pairings. Should some things? Our pairings are going to be wildly different. This is going to be hilarious. Okay. Yeah. Um. So, listen, everyone. We clearly made two different cocktails because we're just two different rad bitches. So, our pairings are going to be slightly different. But, uh, okay, I'm going to just put out a situation. We are having a dinner party. And it really doesn't matter if it's at Christmas time or not. Maybe the Cratchits are there. Maybe Scrooge are there. Who can fucking say? But we're just having a party and we are bringing people together who would bolt, who would like these different drinks. Who would like some version of what we've made. Right. And so this is going to be kind of hilarious. So Anne has invited her friends. I've invited my friends. Um, what are we serving up? Well, to go with your cocktail, a large, a large carafe of water. 
my drink does not feel particularly wintry to me. Really? Um, I think it's, it's a fairly decent <laughs> all season drink. I think it would go fairly well with some hors d'oeuvres or like, I'm imagining also like a green salad with like some citrus elements to it, like maybe slices of orange or slices of grapefruit, like I said before. Like I think an arugula grapefruit salad could be really nice paired with this. Not not to stop there, people, but that's sort of the first thing that came to mind as like a potential food pairing. I'm also, for some reason, I'm thinking of figs. And I wonder whether or not some kind of like fig and cheese or vegan cheese for me and my friends appetizer combination would be a good fit for for one of these drinks oh for sure i mean both of these drinks figs are a really classic pairing with bourbon i've actually done a fig infused bourbon and like a fig have you ever had figs on a pizza with like just a smattering of gorgonzola something else that's salty it's so good that would be delicious with this with both variations actually i think Okay, so we've got an arugula grapefruit salad. We've got a fig pizza. What else do you think we should serve? Bourbon, like I said, is very referential and very um, comforting to me. So there are two things that I am picking that remind me of weekends in Berkeley with my dad and also are very very close to home with my bourbon drinking habits. Um, So the first is Chinese food place where I first had this Old Scout Smooth Ambler is Shenhua in Elmwood District of Berkeley. Um, And it is a Chinese restaurant. And I would legit kill for some of their vegetable dumplings and some of their Shenhua beef to go with this. Like those, they're, they're just warm and hearty foods and they're comforting and they go surprisingly well with this type of cocktail. Uh, And then the other thing that quite frankly, I always want when I'm drinking bourbon is some fries, like good fries, like maybe truffle Thank Parmesan God. fries. God, because I was like, yeah. I need something to absorb this alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> we need some tater tots or some fries or something in here. Uber eat some fucking fries right now. <laughs> Take care of your needs, girl. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what music are we playing at this party? So when I was a young thing, and starting my drinking, uh, I was in sort of a like pop punk phase. And this feels like the kind of thing that I sort of want to party and enjoy with. So I'm tempted to say something really ridiculous, like, like Blink-182 or Green Day or like just, and, and I could go in other directions too, but I feel like something sort of 90s, early 2000s like that's a jam that's jam i'd be fine with green day they're from berkeley perfect great (laughs) what were you thinking because i'm sure it wasn't that no it was you were in fact right it is not that um this is a sexy drink it my version yes is a sexy drink it is a sexy drink that definitely warrants some sexy tunes but with like some old school vibes so i'm going uh smoky robinson okay okay yeah that's i like that's it. what i'm playing in in my kitchen as i'm dancing around sipping on this great i feel like i 
understand a little bit more the sort of books and authors that you and I return to over and over again on this podcast based on the two drinks that we made. So I was trying to think ahead of like, what book would I pair with the drink that you have made? When we kick everyone out of our party. Yeah, when we kick everyone out of our party, I was trying to understand, like, why do you go to certain authors and I gravitate towards others? Because I think that's another really, like, kind of classic thing that we've seen on this podcast. We have a lot of overlap, but we also have some different tastes in this area, too, or different, like, reference points. So I was thinking about the drink that you had made, and I was thinking about authors, and I was like, you know, I feel like something like Dashiell Hammett and the Maltese Falcon make total sense here or even something like uh Raymond Carver would make sense here and then I was like I know Andrea has referenced the Maltese Falcon on at least two episodes of this podcast so that was my first clue and then I started to think about like what I would pair for the drink that I made and my mind immediately went to well Emma it's a very Emma drink it is a very Emma drink. You're right. I was going to say Sense and Sensibility, but you're, no, you're. Yeah, concerned. but I, I, very Jane Austen. I was like, this feels very like, like, I feel like making both of these drinks has helped me understand your pairings and my pairings a little <laughs> bit more. It's fair. That's fair. And actually, my book pairing was going to be the Maltese Falcon. Um, and <laughs> just to be clear, I, there was actually a chapter of my dissertation on the Maltese Falcon. So, I gotta get some leverage out of that shit somewhere. So here we are. All these years later. We're gonna be curled up on your couch. You're gonna be reading the Maltese Falcon. I'm gonna be reading Emma. Sipping our cocktails. Living the dream. What Muppet would you share this drink with? (laughs) Let's see. What Muppet? Oh, I got it. Do you want to guess? Well, I'm really curious if we have the same one, because I have thought of the Muppet that I would pair my drink with. I actually picked two Muppets. Okay, well, who did you pick? I picked Statler and Waldorf. (laughs) Okay, we're safe. We're safe. So for those of you who do not know, uh, Statler and Waldorf are a pair of Muppets who are the two elderly men hecklers who give everybody shit usually from a balcony and i fucking love them (laughs) so uh and in a muppet's christmas carol they play the duo of marley and marley so yeah they're who i'm sipping this drink with they're as close to don draper as i could get so here we are they make total sense i was thinking and i picked miss piggy Oh, okay. In A Muppet's Christmas Carol plays uh, Bob Cratchit's wife, Bob Cratchit, played by Kermit the Frog. But the reason I thought that she could go eat, like, that she could enjoy either of our cocktails was, like, she's so strong and she's such such a, like, fiery, intense presence that I was like, she would absolutely drink a classic cocktail with Andrea. But then I was like, but she'd like the pink of mine. So yeah, she would definitely okay, but she's at the same like she's hanging with us on the same girls trip. Like, yeah, we're all together in Palm Springs. Yeah, she's drinking your drink poolside at the sands in Palm Springs. We've just done a diamond heist. Yep. 
100%. We're plotting what we're going to wear to dinner. And then at the bar, while we're pl- plotting how to seduce the bartender, she's drinking my drink. I feel like she's taking sips out of both of ours. Oh, she I mean, She is, like, yeah, fully stealing our drinks. Drunk. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine yeah. with it, though. I'm not going to complain. I'm not mad. I wouldn't kick her out of bed. No, absolutely not. She's going to sleep between us. <laughs> Wow, exactly. and I just made stuff we weird. Whole cuddle party. <laughs> That's the NSFW version of this yeah. podcast. On that fucking note, um, do you want to tell people where they can find us and tell us about their experience with our cocktails? Yes, please, please, please let us know if you've tried either version of our drinks. Um, both great. Uh, you can let us know. The best place is going to be on Instagram, where you can follow us at Two Girls and a Grape Pod. That's two T W O Girls and a Grape Pod, all one word, all spelled out. You know how Instagram works. You can try tweeting at me at Two Girls and a Grape. That's the number two. But I assure you, just go to Instagram. You can also email us at Two Girls and a Grape Pod at gmail.com. Again, T-W-O, all spelled out. We would love to hear, you know, if you tried this, what adjustments you made, what Muppets you would drink this with, basically anything. And we would also love it if you leave us a rating and review. Uh, Just, you know, open up Apple iTunes, click on five stars, make it your Christmas present to us. You know, if you're feeling extra festive, write us a little review. We would appreciate it so much. And we'll be back again uh, in our next episode with our third uh, Spirit of the Season episode, uh, where we will be featuring uh, a dealer's choice. So Drea will make a drink and I will make a drink and we will just kind of compare notes and see where we land. Seems like a good way to start the new year. Yeah, fuck a dry January. Oh, wait, what? Sorry. (laughs) We don't fuck with dry January is, I think, what she means. Yeah, absolutely do not. And on that note, until next time. Salud. Salud!